It was a balmy summer evening when a baby boy came kicking and screaming into the world in the Macedonian capital of Pella, at the palace of the king, Philip II. His mother, Olympias, was a princess of Epirus, and his father was, of course, the king. Theirs was a marriage of convenience, made to cement a post-war alliance between Epirus and Macedonia, but it was evidently a fruitful marriage nonetheless. Their son was set to lose his royal inheritance if a, quote, true-blooded heir was to be born. But for now, he was to be crown prince, if only by the technicality of there being no other male heir. Over the course of his life, he would receive education from the greatest of warriors, generals, and scholars, lead successful military campaigns across the ancient world, and forge one of the greatest empires the world has ever seen. But just as this boy named Alexander came into this world on a balmy summer day, so too did he depart this world, leaving behind his empire to the strongest. Welcome to the History Podcast. Here we cover segments of history as stories and discuss both popular narratives and other lesser-known tales as well. Our modern understanding of history isn't set in stone, however, and while I'll try to provide as accurate of a narrative as I can, there's some details and specifics that have been lost to time. With that out of the way, I hope you'll join me on this journey through history. This week's episode, Alexander the Great Part 1. Game of Thrones level shenanigans. Now, before we can talk about Alexander, the Macedonian king who would one day be known by the epithet the Great, we need to cover his life before he was great. We also need to cover the exploits of his father, Philip II, as well, as the policies he would enact and lands he would conquer would be instrumental in allowing Alexander to become someone who would be worthy of the title, the Great. First, though, we should establish the nature of the Kingdom of Macedon, and how it fit into the picture of the ancient world, to give context to how things end up shaking out later. Macedon was located to the north of modern-day Greece, and was a resource and land-rich monarchy that was never really able to bring its natural benefits to bear due to constant invasions from the various kingdoms and people around them, as well as logistical and political difficulties. Macedonian people were also considered uh, discount Greeks, in a sense, at least in the eyes of the numerous city-states throughout the Aegean Sea. Many of these Greek cities were particularly adverse to monarchies, which Macedon was, and always felt a bit of apprehension towards them. The Macedonians were allowed to participate in the Olympic Games and other similar events throughout the Greek world, but they were forever treated as inferior, as pseudo-barbarians, if you will. That being said, the Greeks basically considered anyone that wasn't also Greek a barbarian, so the xenophobia is unfortunately par for the course. However, to their credit, Macedonia was a political ma mess for centuries, with the family tree resembling more of a fracturing hedge than a tree, with many lines being cut short early, and others looping back in on themselves, if you catch my drift. For instance, let's look at King Archelaus, a king from around 50 years before the time of Alexander and his father Philip. Archelaus, to his credit, enacted various cultural, economic, and political reforms during his reign, but he ended up murdering his uncle, his cousin, and his half-brother, before marrying his father's widow, not his mother, but a different wife, and then was eventually killed during a hunt as a result of a homosexual intrigue. I don't know about you all, but if that doesn't sound like something that could have been written by George R. R. Martin, I don't know what would. 
Philip II had spent his youth as a hostage in the Greek city of Thebes and lived in the house of Pamenes, who was the right-hand man of the preeminent military mind of the ancient world, Epaminondas. The man was so brilliant that seemingly in the blink of an eye, historically speaking, Thebes had defeated the Spartan army and become the dominant land military force for over 40 years. As Pamenes and Epaminondas would often discuss tactical theory and statecraft by Hearthlight, Philip observed and learned of their tactics and methods, with which he'd one day bring greatness to his kingdom. Once Philip II was crowned king, he was determined to make something of the oft-ravaged kingdom he inherited. He started by pacifying the neighboring kingdoms and establishing peace by marrying into their royal families. It was through this style that he ended up marrying Olympias, with whom he sired Alexander, as well as a daughter named Cleopatra. No direct relation to the famous one. To aid him in these wars to come, Philip II enacted several reforms over the Macedonian military. Throughout most of the ancient world, most armies were composed of citizens who were conscripted from their farms or trades to fight for their kingdom. Philip, however, chose to establish a standing army of professional soldiers that could be better armed and better trained. Philip also improved the arms and armor of his army, including the use of approximately 16-foot spear known as the Sarissa, and deploying a massive amount of cavalry. Most importantly, Philip formed elite corps of both infantry and cavalry known as the Hetairoi, literally the companions in Greek. These companion units were clearly based on the sacred band of Thebes, one of the preeminent military forces in the world. But when combined with his other reforms, it paints a picture that Philip didn't just learn and implement the ideas he learned in Thebes, but he was also a keen strategic mind himself. Now, I know I lured you all in here with the idea of Alexander the Great, and I've just spent the last few minutes not talking about him, but don't worry. He is just about to enter our story now. The late day sun crested over the trees, bathing the grounds around the palace of Pella in a golden light, and casting long shadows for most everything. Philonicus the Thessalian, a trader and breeder of horses, had come to the royal palace with the intent to sell his equine steeds to the Macedonian monarch. In particular, a grand black-coated stallion with a white diamond on his brow was being shown to Philip II as a young Alexander stood by his side. However, none of Philip's retinue present were able to tame the apparently maladjusted mount, whose name of Bucephalus, translated to English as Oxhead, was apparently well-earned due to his stubborn and obstinate nature. Due to the horse's unruly qualities and the inability of any to bring him to bear, Philip was seemingly uninterested in forking over the insanely high price of 13 talents for silver, regardless of how high a quality the horse might have been. For young Alexander, however, it was love at first sight. Tugging at his father's kingly robes, Alexander proposed a bet. If he were able to tame Bucephalus, then Philip would buy Bucephalus for him. But if he were to fall to the ground in the attempt, then he would pay for the steed himself. I don't know how a young adolescent, prince or no, would be able to afford such a price. One talent was equivalent to nine man-years of skilled labor, but he had the capital to cover it, apparently. After his father accepted his wager, the young prince approached the ornery horse, Alexander gently took Bucephalus's head with his hand, stroked his mane, 
and led the stallion to turn and face toward the setting sun so he could no longer see his shadow, which was apparently spooking him. Mounting up on the horse, Alexander dropped his cloak and after a few minutes brought the steed to heel. With a great amount of fatherly pride building in his breast, Philip paid Philonicus the thirteen talents and then called out to his son, Oh, my son, look thee out a kingdom, equal and worthy of thyself, for Macedonia is too little for thee. And Philip would be right, as Alexander would one day conquer lands far and abroad, carried on the back of noble Bucephalus. However, Philip's little speech there was potentially a bit inaccurate, as Philip would soon come to show significantly less fatherly love for Alexander shortly. Plus, these words would be slightly confusing a little on their own, unless one already had the foreknowledge that Alexander would come to rule more than just Macedon, which would seem to imply that these words were written after some of Alexander's exploits. But hey, there's a good way to end up that story, huh? A few years passed since then, and Philip decided that he and Alexander should engage in some more father-son bonding by conquering the Greek city-states to the south. It was 338 before Common Era, roughly six years after Alexander was united with his trusty steed, and Philip brought him along to help command against the Greek alliance that arrayed themselves against him. Alexander, just as his father had in Thebes, would absorb all of Philip's military acumen, and then, once he was king apply it himself several times over. The Greek alliance that met Philip's army at Chaeronea, roughly central mainland Greece, was composed of Athenians, assorted mercenaries, and Thebans, including the aforementioned sacred band. Some Greeks viewed Philip as a potential catalyst to unite the disparate states against the ever-present Persian threat. Others, such as the Order Demosthenes, viewed him as a despot and a conqueror, would only serve to destroy the freedom and individuality of their home poles. This army was swayed by the latter argument, and thus chose to make their stand against the oppression that Philip represented. Philip II commanded from a cavalry unit on the Macedonian right flank, where his infantry line would be the weakest, while Alexander rode with the cavalry on the Macedonian left, though he was commanded by Philip to hold position until he was given the proper signal. Sarissa-wielding Macedonian phalanx filled up the middle of the Macedonian line, allowing the more mobile cavalry units to cover their flanks. On the Greek side, the Athenians held their left, facing off against Philip, where the Thebans held the right, with their sacred band taking up the rightmost flank, and mercenaries filling out the middle of the line. The Greek general commanded that the sacred band stay put and hold that right flank, no matter what. Silence fell over the field, after the armies squared off against each other, and then Philip made the first move. Philip charged forward with his cavalry, crashing into the Athenian lines, while the rest of his army stayed put. After a short skirmish, Philip then pulled his forces back from the fight, goading his adversaries to pursue. The Athenians took the bait and advanced. However, the Thebans remained stationary, in solidarity with their sacred band, who was commanded not to move. This opened up holes in the Greek line, 
as the mercenaries tried to maintain cohesion with both the advancing Athenians and the stationary Thebans. And that was exactly what Philip was looking for. Rearing up on his horse and turning back towards his enemy, Philip commanded all of his units to charge, and simultaneously gave the order to Alexander's unit to charge through the gap and break the Greek lines. Spurring Bucephalus onward, Alexander's men charged as commanded and shattered the Greek formation. The Greeks were now outflanked, allowing Alexander to strike at the rear of their units with impunity. Seeing this, the majority of the Greek forces were put to rout and fled. However, the sacred band stood strong and refused to abandon their position no matter what. Thus, they were killed to the last, on the spot they refused to yield. A monument still remains today at that fateful spot, where the sacred band were put to the sword, refusing to yield even one inch to the Macedonian army. While the Battle of Chaeronea was a great success for Alexander, especially as it was his first real position in command, things on the home front were significantly less successful for him. Many of Philip's advisors, in a xenophobic manner indicative of the times, suggested that he take a Macedonian wife so that he could sire a, quote, pure Macedonian heir. Capitulating, Philip married a woman named Cleopatra. Yes, I know this is already a little confusing, since Alexander's sister is also named Cleopatra, and neither of them are the famous one by the birth of the Aegean in about 300 years. But trust me, it is going to get much worse. Going forward, I'll refer to them as Queen and Princess Cleopatra, as is applicable. And I apologize in advance. At this point, Philip was the hegemon of over 90% of Greece, and he now had a sight set on invading the Persian Empire, which, by landmass, was the largest empire in the Mediterranean world at the time. As such, Philip needed to ensure the loyalties of his generals for the grand expedition into Persia. It was thus fortuitous that Queen Cleopatra was the daughter of one of the army's upper echelon by the name of Attalus, who himself was the son of Parmenion, one of the top generals of the Macedonian army. Thus, with this wedding, Philip would accomplish the dual purpose of placating his court and securing the loyalty of his generals. With that hopefully settled, Philip also spent some time amassing his forces and preparing them to invade Persia. However, this turn of events did not sit well with Alexander or Olympias, who would be potentially disenfranchised of their royal inheritance by this new union. And for sure, they were both unafraid to express their discontent at the situation. At the wedding between Philip and Queen Cleopatra, the king became a bit too intoxicated, and when he moved across the room, he stumbled and fell. Alexander, disgust in his eyes, approached his father, and turning his head to the rest of the reception, said something to the effect of, this is the man who seeks to cross from Europe into Asia? He can't even cross the freaking room. And with a turn, and maybe even going so far as to spit on the ground in repulsion, Alexander left the party.
Now, while we already know that Philip wasn't a one-woman kind of guy, he also wasn't a one-gender kind of guy either, in the style of his southern Greek neighbors. His favored male lover, for a while, was a young man by the name of Pausanias, but their relationship ended at some point before the previous wedding to Cleopatra. They didn't part ways amicably either, which made things take a turn for the awkward when Philip then took a new lover who just so happened to also be named Pausanias. For clarity, the first one will be Pausanias I, and the second Pausanias will be the Pausanias II. Now, Pausanias I was jealous as all hell, and in that jealousy, he goaded Pausanias II, saying he was a weak man, unworthy of Philip. Determined to prove himself, Pausanias II charged alone during a battle, and promptly got himself killed for even thinking that that could have been a good idea. Now... Philip wasn't Pausanias II's first lover, as he also used to be the flame of Attalus, the general and father of Queen Cleopatra. In revenge, Attalus invited Pausanias I to his home, and then proceeded to commit unspeakable acts of torture to him. Still alive after the, the ordeal, Pausanias I, who I guess I can just now refer to as Pausanias, since the other one is dead, appealed to Philip to avenge him as his former lover. To assuage this former flame, Philip promoted Pausanias to his honor guard, but then took no action against Attalus, since he was one of Philip's top generals. Pausanias never forgot this, as will soon be relevant in just a moment. Shortly after the new marriage, Alexander and Olympias traveled back to her home of Epirus to stay with her brother, who was the king of Epirus, and whose name was also Alexander. Our focus character will still be Alexander, but his uncle will be Alexander of Epirus. This is the third time, I think you all know the drill by now. Olympias had shared what had gone down with the marriage to Queen Cleopatra, and how Philip had disenfranchised them both. Alexander of Epirus shared in their anger and confronted Philip on the topic. Rather than risk a potential war as he was preparing to invade Persia, Philip proposed a political marriage once again to ease tensions and re-solidify their relationship as nations and as brothers. The, quote, lucky lady this time around was Princess Cleopatra, which, yes, was the niece of Alexander of Epirus. And yes, is the second marriage this episode of a king to someone named Cleopatra. I know. I know. The reception of this wedding between Alexander of Epirus and Princess Cleopatra was to take place at the Grand Amphitheater at Pella. For his grand appearance at the event, Philip was to come out on the stage, flanked by the two Alexanders, his son and his new in-law. In order to achieve the appearance he desired, however... He commanded his honor guard to remain behind the stage so that he and the Alexanders could be as prominent on stage as possible. As the three took to the stage, donned in their traditional ceremonial robes, a flash of steel could suddenly be seen from behind one of the backs of the honor guards. Pausanias 
Still enraged over Philip's refusal to avenge him, drew a dagger, and with a look of unbridled anger on his face, plunged it into the neck of Philip, a shower of crimson viscera staining his robes red. As the Alexanders turned to aid the fallen king, Pausanias attempted to flee, but was soon cut down by a group of pursuers. Justice was done, but it was far too late. Philip was dead. Now, Pausanias' choice to murder Philip here could have easily been determined to have been done out of a sense of revenge. However, even though he was demonstrably not the smartest man, it seems unlikely that he would commit to a course that would result in his imminent death. Unless, perhaps, he wasn't working alone, and operated on the assumption that his co-conspirators would protect him after the deed. But in the end, no help came for him, and he was killed in the attempt. All that is left, then, is to ask ourselves, who would benefit from Philip dying there and then? Olympias and the two Alexanders would be the principal parties that would benefit, as Alexander would then ascend the throne, as Queen Cleopatra's children were not yet of age. This would then make Olympias, the Queen Mother, a respectable position, basically for life, and would also give Alexander of Epirus a blood relative of the Macedonian throne. While there's no historical evidence that tells us what really happened that fateful evening, the results were still the same. Alexander was now the king of Macedon. The newly crowned king of Macedon first had a bit of housekeeping to do before actually accomplishing anything as king. As with every previous Macedonian king's death, many of the neighboring kingdoms figured that now was the opportune time to raid and take Macedonian territory as their own. Suffice to say, but Alexander put down these incursions promptly. Then, Alexander had to eliminate the children of Princess Cleopatra, in addition to those of the other wives that Philip had taken over the years. While a cruel and unnecessary practice by modern standards, Alexander considered it necessary to consolidate his rule and prevent coups. With all that out of the way, Alexander could finally get down to business, and his first order was to take advantage of the infrastructure that Philip had put in place and invade the Persian Empire. With his sights set eastward, Alexander was determined to cross the Dardanelles into modern-day Turkey. But that story will have to wait for another time and another place. Thank you for listening to the History Podcast. If there's anything I may have gotten incorrect, something I may have glossed over, or if you have any questions, feel free to bring those up in the comment section. Music for this episode has been sourced from freemusicarchive.org under Creative Commons, and proper attribution and links to the artist's profiles will be in the description below. In the next episode, you will continue to follow along with Alexander's rise to power as he sets his sights eastward towards the Persian Empire. See you all next time!